Welcome everybody to Telecom Radio One. This is your host, Phil Howard, the most bearded man in telecom. And today we are continuing to talk about IT leadership in business-minded CTOs. Very happy to have Bill Clayman back once again uh, to talk about enterprise migrations. Why the heck would we ever do an enterprise migration to begin with? Uh, oftentimes very complicated, a lot of moving pieces involved. Uh, but with that being said, Bill, thanks for being on the show, man, once again. Hey, Phil. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for having me on the line here. What a fascinating topic. I think that a lot of folks listening to this are going to uh, hopefully personalize their conversation. Listen, it doesn't have to be a major enterprise or IT or digital transformation or even migration. It could be little. It could be big. Uh, a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about today is really good food thought tips that you guys can take away. Um, listen, it's going to happen. You can't be stagnant or complacent. There's going to come a point where you're going to have to make some decisions, and hopefully this podcast will, uh, will help you out there. Awesome. Thank you. So the reason why I'm choosing enterprise, though, is because in enterprise, there's a lot of moving parts, right? There's no hiding in the closet anymore. There's no – the IT ticket taker can't hide away from this. When there's an enterprise migration, it's everything is kind of – I guess you would say multiplied even bigger. So you have a you have a human factor, right? Because you've got thousands of people in an enterprise uh, organization that are going to experience change, and, and we all know everyone loves change. We're going to have dollar figures where where money is a factor, as much as people say that you know money can't always be the decision making factor. Money matters. Um, speed matters patience and trust and ability matter so much. So you have a lot of experience migrating all kinds of applications within the cloud to the cloud. Today, I wanted to talk a little bit about that seed that you planted last time, which is Google Docs, because you guys have done a bunch of <laughs> enterprise. I mean, you've done a bunch of enterprise migrations. And I just want to know, you know, again, why would someone move? I thousands and thousands of users from say uh, from Microsoft to Google and there's obviously reasons why I know money's a lot of times licensing can be one of the issues but that type of migration is not an easy thing so I'm just gonna toss this one over the fence and let you talk about you know wherever you want to start with that is, is it is does it start with money does it start with people and then we'll go from there absolutely so thank you so much and uh, everybody listening uh, t take a seat. Hopefully you're relaxing. Maybe you're in the car listening to this. Uh, maybe you're on a walk or a jog. But uh, we're, we're going to go into an almost NPR-like conversation without the quiet flute playing in the background. <laughs> um, so, so enjoy this conversation a little bit. I'm going to tell you guys a little bit of a story and the journey that we went on. Um, it's important to start with sort of the, the motto that we have at MTM Technologies. It's sort of what we do. Um, and our goal is to make cloud computing and technology utilization a natural human extension to both business and life. Um, and I want you guys to think about that people-centric approach that I'm going to be talking about here in just a little bit because, uh, you know, these sorts of migrations are not easy, uh, but they're certainly important. I mean, you're literally helping your customers navigate and chart these cloud waters, this digital transformation process to allow them to be successful uh, and not just leverage technology, but impact people, life, process, and, of course, uh, the business as well. But again, remember that human extension to both business and life to make IT a natural process for people. So uh, let's back up and tell you a little bit of the story. A large, large organization uh, located out here in the Midwest and a global company 
Um, you know, so, so a part of the reason uh, we started talking about this migration, this was specifically into a Google ecosystem, not just Google Docs, interestingly enough, but also Chromebooks, Chrome Pucks, those little, little devices, those pseudo PCs you can attach to a monitor at an endpoint, as well as some Google Docs uh, applications as well that they can leverage. Now, there were several, several thousands of users here, and they're all used to working with a Microsoft-based operating system, you know, a traditional laptop PC, um, so I'm sure everybody out here is listening, oh my, oh my God, how, how do you possibly take thousands of users away from a, an architecture you know, that they're so very used to and you know, migrate them over to uh, an experience that, you know, it, honestly quite a bit different. So let's begin with, uh, with the actual use case and why we need to do this. So uh, an organization with a cloud-first mentality is aiming to create a simpler way to access applications, centralized content so that applications and even data points aren't residing um, with the endpoint or so much as the user uh, or with the user even. Again, that's all centralized within a data center, for example. Um, furthermore, licensing costs have continued to increase, um, and that's caused them, honestly, uh, on occasion, several million dollars extra spend that they need to work with. Uh, and the other big element was the distribution of IT and most of all, the distribution of connected people. So they were looking for ways to support salespeople, maybe manufacturing, uh, traveling personnel, uh, and honestly, getting, uh, giving them laptops was a lot of times very kludgy, expensive in some situations. Uh, and then working with Chromebooks was a lot easier. So the end goal was pretty beautiful, right? Simple devices, really fast boot up times, nothing stored at the endpoint, and even the partitions on those Chromebooks are encrypted. So if they get stolen, the best the guy can do, the thief can do, is maybe they'll get a brand new Chromebook, but they'll never be able to access the content actually on that device. Now, getting to that end goal, from the start of a journey uh, was, was not necessarily an easy process. And it did take uh, some, some time, uh, a lot of planning, uh, and understanding the business use case and scenario. So the first thing, the first thing you can do, and I recommend this to everybody, is forget about the technology. Just, just forget about it. Immediately, don't, don't think about the solution. Don't think about what you need to put forward. Think about the person. And you need to understand individual user groups, uh, whether it's sales, manufacturing, finance, marketing, executive level, uh, sales, whatever the case might be, think about the user and really approach that conversation easily. Remember that human-centric approach? Sit down with them. Go to their business leaders or go to these actual users and say, pretend like I'm not here. I just want to see what you do every day. Show me how you log in. Show me the apps that you access. Which ones do you think take the longest to load? What are you missing from your experience right now? And then really understand the life of this person in the business environment, how they interact with their devices, what they do that's productive, and really take note of the stuff that's slower, maybe kludgy stuff that's making them less productive potentially, and where you can find improvement. Um, from there, you begin to architect the process. Now, in our situation, we certainly couldn't just migrate all of these applications uh, into a Google type of architecture. Listen, there were going to be some apps that had to stay on a, a Microsoft ecosystem. So what we did was actually leverage Citrix, uh, a few of the technology there with uh, application and both desktop delivery. But what's a really amazing thing here is that this kind of architecture, it's not dependent on the endpoint. And what's really cool is it's not dependent on a type of operating system sitting at the endpoint either. Now, we can deliver the apps that they're used to and even the desktops that they're used to in a completely seamless fashion 
using things like HTML5. So no clients even, unless we need some kind of a deep redirection, or even like content redirection, or even physical device redirection, we can deploy this entire experience using HTML5. So basically just a browser. A browser on these Chromebooks becomes the quote-unquote operating system through which they can access their experience, um, their applications and desktops. Now you dive a little bit deeper and you can do things like application pre-launching. You can make sure that th their desktop is nice and ready and actually spun up before they actually even sit down. Maybe 15 minutes before we know a group of users are going to be sitting down at their Chromebooks, we spin up their instances so that their, their, their architecture launches almost instantaneously as if those Windows desktops and applications are located at the endpoint. Now, let's back up a little bit, right? That, that sounds really awesome. Lots of sunshine, daisies, people love their environment. That, that's not the case, right? You put a Chromebook in front of somebody and say, good luck, here's your environment, you're gonna, you're gonna get some pushback. So for an organization that's an enterprise, not an SMB, not a mid-market, we'll talk about a lar larger one, but remember, listening to this in your mid-market or a smaller shop, you can absolutely take these points and pieces of advice uh, and do some really cool things with them as well. Uh, here's what you can start doing. Create champions within your organization. So within this company, we actually created Google Champions. In the organization itself, in their headquarters, and some remote spots, we put up banners. We put up um, giant cardboard logos. We put up these, these boxes showing different kinds of Google apps and what they can do. We set up kiosks. Um, where uh, Google was able to stand there with the Chromebook and say, hey, come on over, check these things out, take a look at how good this experience is. And this didn't happen over the course of a week. It was several months of prepping and training the user so they really understood and became familiar through this natural process of computing that they were going to be moving into. So we gave them ample time to get used to this kind of architecture and we made them feel, and not just feel, but really they were in charge of that migration. So it was done at a pace that they were comfortable with. Then you have to create champions, internal departmental champions. Pick someone from HR, pick someone from marketing, pick someone from finance, maybe pick an executive leader and have them really understand this kind of environment so they can actually go back to the user base and champion the solution. It's not going to work if you just have your architect or IT guy or IT director or super caffeinated CTO going out there and saying how cool this is. That's not going to be enough. You need to create champions internally within the organization that are going to champion the solution and help you drive it forward. Without that, you're going to have limited success and certainly limited levels of adoption. So these champions would actually have some of these devices. They would be thought leaders. And here's what we did. The idea isn't just to replace a compute architecture or to have a migration or enterprise migration plan uh, to a new kind of environment. You have to make it better. You have to make the experience better. So all of a sudden, it's not just a new PC or a new way to access an application or a desktop. It is a new and better way to compute. So all of a sudden, remember we talked about that people-centric approach just a little bit earlier, us sitting down with the user, asking them a couple of questions, making sure that we understand how they're actually getting in their environment. Well, now we're not only replicating that kind of experience, we're focusing on the deficiencies that they used to have and incorporating that uh, those improvements into this new environment. And we remember that as a good architect, you take note of the feedback from the users to make sure that when you're talking to that same group and saying, hey, you guys remember when you had to launch this application and it took a while? 
guess what we did? We set a timer and an actual policy that's going to pre-launch your application before 8 o'clock in the morning so that you will never again have to wait for your productivity suite to load, ever. And we also make that environment seamless, directly integrating with things like Google Docs, Google Applications, all encompassed into one service portal. And in that service portal, side by side, they can access some legacy uh, applications. So to them, it's all quote unquote SaaS. Centralized in the core data center, virtualization, application and desktop virtualization allows us to deliver legacy applications or even ones that are virtualized um, on a Windows environment down to an endpoint right alongside applications that are only living in the cloud. We want to make this experience as transparent as possible to the end user to give, give them a really, really good experience. So when they're logging in, it's their portal. They're familiar with this portal already. And side by side are both the applications that they used to use all the time and some of the new ones from Google, uh, Google Apps and Google Docs as they transition forward. So now we're kind of building on the scenario, right? So you've got champions that have been hounding the message for a while. You had the user who's walked by these Google kiosks, maybe picked one of these things up, had a chance to trial them out. You've done user acceptance testing with champion groups, small numbers of pilot users to make sure that each individual user group is actually optimized um, and is able to experience this kind of architecture efficiently and certainly very effectively. Now you start to move towards that migration plan. And throughout all of this, you're doing obviously bug testing. Uh, you're making sure that uh, the experience is always powerful. Uh, you're, you're making sure that you're always covering the questions and the challenges that users are having. Um, now, obviously, throughout this entire process, you have to leverage little optimizations, uh, ways that you can continuously improve the experience. Uh, because we're leveraging cloud, there's a lot of really smart ways that you can make sure that uh, whatever you're sending down that pipe uh, is truly a good, uh, a good way for them to compute and take in these applications and desktops that they're working with. Now, as you're kind of piecing all of this together, uh, you're seeing an organization that's been continuously talking the message down to the end user and with the end user specifically. Remember, it's not just IT or executives that are designing it. A truly successful enterprise migration plan is actually one that allows the user to design a part of it, right? Through their feedback, through their interaction with the technology, uh, and through the way that they compute uh, and actually take this stuff in. Remember, our users today, even though they might be the same people we've known for years, they're going to access and leverage technology fundamentally different. And that is a part of this digital inception point, I'm sorry, inflection point that we're experiencing right now. Um, is the connected user, the mobile user, uh, and certainly those users that aren't just using traditional technologies uh, to access uh, various types of applications and resources. So these kinds of mobile users have to be catered to. Now, what we did then is we made sure that the transition happened. Um, and again, this wasn't like even a month process. It took, it took several, several months uh, of making sure that the message sunk in, that we answered any questions, that user groups were, uh, were accommodated to, uh, and we slowly began the migration plan and process. Now, we did this in parallel. Not everybody at once gets a Chromebook, right? We get certain divisions. We might try certain different kinds of user groups and parts of the business just to see what happens. And listen, this is certainly not uncommon to what other major uh, vendors do out there. Look at Apple, right? They have beta testers or even Android, for example. Before they even release a major update, now I know it's never perfect. I know stuff still breaks. 
the same thing with Microsoft, but they do have alpha and beta testers, groups of users that they know that they can deploy this stuff to, so they can get a chance to collect information, data, and see where all the bugs are. And I cannot stress this part enough. We learned so much from our beta users. We learned how to make sure sessions were smoothly roaming between devices. We made sure we understood what needs to be compressed, for example, when there's a latent connection. We made sure we understood uh, where all of the various users were actually coming in from and even found out that there's locations like, for example, more from home or more from out of band sort of, sort of architectures um, where these users are actually coming in. So it wasn't always quote unquote on the network. And it always wasn't a, a place where we could control the connection, right? For example, a Starbucks. So we had to make the security obviously contextual. Who are you? Where are you coming in from? What kind of device is it? And what, are you, what content are you accessing? All the way down to an experiential uh, uh, sort of architecture where the experience is always positive, but transparent and never deprecating the security. So as we rolled out this solution, right, uh, leveraging Citrix technologies to make sure that uh, the underlying ecosystem uh, still supported some of those legacy applications and desktops that needed to be delivered. Remember, not everything needed to or could move to uh, a Google type of endpoint architecture. And then we closely couple that with these cloud components in creating a transparent portal, a service architecture, which empowered users to use technology to its fullest capability. Now, fast forward to this uh, sort of phase transition plan We've got groups of users that now know how to use this technology. And here's the kicker. When you have champions and other user groups um, that have already deployed this, they can help out others. They can go back and say, hey, this is really cool. Here's how it's better. Um, and this level of continuous improvement just does not only happen at an executive or IT management level. It happens within user champions as well. And here's the thing. You can incentivize users as well. You can ask them, hey, you know what, we might give you a $50 Amazon gift card for every bug or every feedback point that you give back to us. And at that point, they become a part of the process and they become truly involved and feel like they're making an impact, not just in how they do their job, but how the company performs and leverages technology in general. So slowly but surely, all of these users began to consume uh, their resources in a new way. They were given these Chromebooks. And what was great to see is this almost seamless transition through all of the teaching, all of the educating, all of the buck fixing, uh, all of the understanding, and again, that human-centric approach where we didn't experience a lot of pushback. You know, we, we didn't see a lot of users just, just flip a table and say, there's no way I want this stuff. What we saw were people coming back and saying, this is a tool that makes my job easier. This is a tool that doesn't complicate my life. And this is a tool that's faster and actually better than what we had before. And listen, it's not just a psychological excuse me, psychological approach here. Uh, it's a pragmatic approach to make sure that we are literally making the user's life, lives easier. And that is actually the definition of digital technology and what we are actually striving to accomplish uh, is that, again, that human-centric approach uh, and an extension to both business and life so that technology can be made uh, easier to leverage and consume in any instance. So this migration plan wasn't easy. There's always a learning part and process to this. We're still learning and we're still figuring out ways we can make this environment better. But the big point here is it's not impossible and it doesn't have to be painful. Um, through following good steps, uh, good architectural processes, and remember, starting with the people and, and actually involving them throughout the entire architectural approach, the design, the testing, and then the final rollout, it's going to make them feel important. It's going to make them absolutely become a part of the process as well. 
So to become successful and actually do this properly, you really always need to think like an architect and see the big picture. Never let you get yourself get bogged down by the minutia uh, of a certain type of maybe uh, error or maybe a certain type of deployment. Always do your best to see the big picture and how a certain type of uh, maybe uh, a setting or a mode or a deployment model might impact the rest of the user group or the organization. That way, you're always impacting not just one part of the company, but rather everybody to make sure the entire experience is powerful. Going to Google isn't easy. And if anything, going to any new kind of environment isn't going to be simple. Uh, but as long as you take a good, steady, pragmatic approach, and again, focusing on the people that you're trying to impact, you're going to find success. My biggest pieces of advice and recommendation uh, are find champion users, test with specific user groups, uh, make sure you ask those people-centric questions like, tell me what you're doing, how can we improve your experience, you know, where are there potential challenges in, in how you come in every single day and leverage these kinds of solutions, and you will see them open up. You will see them tell you how to make their life easier, and then from there, it's your job to deploy. So these kinds of migrations don't have to be hard, but they do need to be meticulous, meticulously planned out, and certainly you need to evolve uh, involve various parts of the organization, a good partner, um, and certainly, uh, you know, people inside the organization that can help make a difference. So uh, at a high level, that's what happened and that's what we did. Um, currently, we are still putting more and more users onto this sort of Google Chromebook ecosystem. Again, we started off with a pilot. We flew that pilot as we needed to. We learned so much from this kind of pilot. Uh, and again, we always made sure we involved the end user to make this kind of architecture and model uh, ultimately successful. So regardless of what you're moving to, you can do it. You can be successful in doing it. Um, and again, it, it, it could be done at a mid-market and an enterprise level. Uh, again, focus on the people and make sure that the process uh, is something that actually can make their environment uh, much, much easier. So I'm going to take a breath and a break here, uh, Dylan, and see if you got any thoughts or, or questions. Uh, definitely some questions. The, I guess my first, my guess my first question would be just some best practices for some of the other IT directors out there. How did you conduct the, the uh, do you have any tools or how did you conduct kind of like some of those interviews? Do you have any like best practices or little tools that you use, surveys, uh, anything like that? And how did you go about dividing up via departments i'm assuming like you know in an enterprise company you already have departments kind of divided up but maybe give us some tools that would be like easy best practices for asking questions and kind of diagnosing sure sure um so all right so so, so the, the bad news is that there really isn't a quote-unquote script for this um, if you, and that's kind of the hole you can go down, right? I, I would honestly try and create for architects and people involved in this project uh, guidelines rather than maybe specific questions you need to ask. Uh, the challenge becomes that, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you treat everybody the same, uh, you know, like, like an average, you're probably not going to get very far, right? There's this really, really funny story. Uh, during during World War II, right, they they tried the uh, the most efficient way to deliver uh, uniforms to their soldiers. So what they did is they tried to take an average out of all of their GIs um, in the military and try to create a uniform based on the average. And what happened? Uniform didn't fit anybody. So in that same sense, 
You can't just take an average or a script or, uh, you know, just print something out to make the process go by faster. In fact, that's going to probably hurt you. My biggest recommendation is to actually take this uh, piece by piece, understand which business unit you're working with, and understand what's important to that business unit. Sales is going to be different than marketing. Marketing is going to be different than finance. Finance is going to be different than the executive level and so on down the line. My recommendation would be to take that approach pragmatically. Again, uh, talk to each individual unit, business unit, understand what their requirements are. Uh, you can potentially ask the same questions. Hey, what do you do? What are some of the challenges you have? Show me what you do every single day. How do you compute? What are the different kinds of tools and maybe systems that you use? Uh, and sit down and learn. Believe it or not, your job here is less about talking, more about asking and listening. Really, that that's that's the secret and the guideline I can provide. Um, there's, there's no script. And again, I, I do recommend that if you are going to become, if you're going to create templates um, or scripted questions, make them loose because you really are trying to create a personalized experience. That's the only way you're going to become successful uh, is if, although you are trying to create, obviously, an approach that's uh, covering the entire organization, uh, it's really critical to understand individual business units and certainly individual business users as well. So. There are going to be tools that you can leverage, so network scans and monitors. Uh, you can see um, from, for example, if you're using a load balancer, like a Citrix NetScaler, you can use things like management analytics systems to see where people are coming in from. Uh, you can tell what their experience is. You can immediately, before you even deploy anything, and say, oh, hang on a second, this one division of users connecting from remotely all have maybe somewhat of a limited connection, and that, as a result, gives them maybe a limited experience. So for these guys, we're going to have a separate policy to do high levels of maybe compression, for example. Uh, you know, maybe we'll, we'll deprecate the performance of video if they're downloading that just to make their overall experience a little bit better. Or, you know what, you might decide to deploy like an SD-WAN or a WAN optimization solution to make sure that their experience is on par with the rest of the organization. Um, so, you know, other tools include, uh, you know, user experience and, and workload monitoring, for example, uh, that give you really good data points and data analytics to create an architecture that allows you to remediate issues that maybe the user doesn't even know about or they can't talk about it, right? Um, because a lot of times, uh, you know, a user, if there's an issue or if there's a problem, they might not tell you about it or they might just ignore it and say, you know, I, I don't care, I don't, I don't know what's going on here, I'm just gonna try and do something else. And that's really kind of like the worst case scenario because we wanna know about it. So uh, some of these tools allow you to monitor the experience, you can see how the connection is flowing, uh, you can potentially see why something is taking really long to load or uh, if a user's computers is bogged down with services and different kinds of applications, that's all stuff on the back end you can, you can do. Uh, but again, getting feedback from the user themselves uh, it's going to be a great way to approach the entire model and architecture. But remember the individual approach, the business unit approach. Um, and even though it's one organization, the priorities of different um, divisions with that company uh, are going to are going to um, are going to be certainly different. Yeah, I, I was thinking even simpler, just more along the lines of like, did you survey Monkey, or did you have a Google face? <laughs> did you have a Google Facebook group that was called, you know, the pet peeves about the new system group? Um, what annoys me or what do I love? Um, the, the kiosks is, is outstanding. Like just, just having a live kiosk there is, I mean, all these ideas are great. I, I can't, you know, I've seen, I've seen both outstanding rollouts and I've walked into a hospital where there's, you know, they migrated or so-called 
migrated to a cloud, you know, EMR system, and there's just a bunch of computers on wheels sitting in the corner unplugged. So, and in uh-huh. that situation, and that was just, you know, my, my dad got his hip replaced and I'm sitting around looking at the computers and asking the nurses and, and various different people walking around like, Hey, what's, why is that computer sitting in the corner? And I kind of got an eye roll. And while that was, you know, this, the so-called cloud rollout, which clearly um, none of the staff was involved and they didn't have, you know, mobile kiosks or, you know, Hey, what do you think of the new, you know, system station or they just didn't have this whole, you know, very open-ended a rollout uh, like you performed here, you know, where you could, you know, diagnose various different user issues and annoyances and stuff like that. It was just, hey, we're going to do it this way and we're going to plug it in and it's going to work, which clearly does not work that way. Right, right, right. So, so plugging it in, right, and just hoping for the best is really not a great approach. So, uh, I love SurveyMonkey, um, and my my recommendation is, is that is not a bad way to approach it, um, but but please don't generalize it. That That's the other really big piece of advice I can give everybody, is, is getting a survey out in a digital format or asking questions around what is your best, what is your pet peeve, or, you know, what can we make better? Uh, that's really important. My recommendation is to make it anonymous uh, and make sure people know that it's an anonymous survey uh, because you are definitely going to get uh, really good data points. Um, and what, what else is really good about things like SurveyMonkey is that you can take things like aggregates, right? So you'll understand what's happening with the users sort of in a general sense. But even in that point, I recommend that you don't just send out a SurveyMonkey to your entire, uh, entire organization. Uh, departmentalize it, right? Focus on key specific user groups. And again, even in that sense, maybe you use the SurveyMonkey as an initial starting point. Still go down to those end users and talk to them. Um, nothing will replace interpersonal communication. And this is coming from a millennial guy who loves to text and I love digital tools and solutions. I'm all about, you know, video, voice and collaboration. But in some of these instances, because you are in a way changing and I use this word lightly, disrupting the way they do things, you need to create an interpersonal communication level to allow them to feel like they are truly a part of the process, which they most certainly are. Okay. Next question. How did you migrate people off of Microsoft Excel? And did you? And this is very specific. You obviously, know, I'm just trying to think yeah. of like, you know, this is like going to be like the, the person that's used Excel their whole life and you hand them, you know, the, the Google equivalent, they might go shoot themselves. Right, right. Um, so, so in those situations, um, so Google Sheets allows, you know, certainly multiple users, uh, to edit an Excel spreadsheet, for example, there's certainly big benefits in terms of, uh, you know, what you can do as far as, um, as far as Google Sheets versus Microsoft Excel. Um, and here's the reality, right? You're, you're going to see Google continue to become more and more sophisticated, add more features to Sheets. Um, you know, while, you know, while Microsoft has also been somewhat beefing up Excel collaborative um, capabilities. So, you know, in that kind of environment, uh, there's, there's going to be situations, I need to make this clear, where you're going to potentially run both. And there's going to be user groups that you simply can't move. Um, and you are going to have that have to make that kind of decision, right? Uh, in some situations, for simple users, you can use Google Sheets, but in some situations, um, you might still need to be able to operate and work with an architecture that supports traditional Microsoft Office systems. 
Um, and I'll tell you what, Phil, we, we did that, right? There were definitely user groups that still needed to get uh, traditional Microsoft Office uh, deployed into their architecture. Now, our savings weren't just with Office. Obviously, our savings were with the Microsoft operating system, uh, the endpoint potentially, uh, you know, obviously the lessening and the requirement of Microsoft licensing. Um, and again, working with different kinds of solutions that lessened our reliance on the Microsoft ecosystem. But again, there's going to be situations where you simply can't rip and replace. Um, and, you know, there's, there's going to be typical spreadsheet users and there are going to be some business professionals that do some really advanced stuff, right? In, in a multi-platform world, the beautiful part here is that you can use both of these kinds of architectures, even in a web-based kind of scenario, um, that allows you to run them side by side. And even today, your capability to import or export both different kinds of models into one or the other is fundamentally easier. Um, so some users can certainly be using Google Sheets just to make it easier to have that online presence and those users that really need advanced formulas that have got all of these advanced Excel spreadsheets, they're going to have to potentially stay on there as well. Because listen, there's going to be situations where you simply can't uh, transfer some of these advanced formulas uh, you know, some of these, uh, 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 you know, really, really crazy Excel sheets that you know people have created. Um, and again, to that extent, it, you just you just can't remove that. If, if, if your organization is really sort of all or nothing, you're going to have to take some really, really cautious approaches. And in that situation, you might need to hire, you know, Microsoft Office or even Excel experts who can potentially in some ways transfer those formulas uh, down to uh, Google Sheets. Now, those are going to be your accounting, maybe potentially, uh, you know, salespeople who have, like I said, advanced formulas in their Excel spreadsheets. Um, that's that's not going to be easy. Um, in those situations, you might need to take a much more catered approach uh, to that uh, to that sort of uh, sort of migration. Um, and again, again, it's 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 not easy. Uh, in in our situation, you know, there's. Um, you know, there's there's going to be areas where where we just simply couldn't move this stuff over, and we had to keep a parallel architecture running. Now, that my next question is is I guess around mobile users because you have a what's your feeling on like BYOD? Like, did you did we have a lot of you know people bringing their own iPhones or anything like this? Was this you know iPhone versus Droid devices? How did that how did that come into play? So, uh, you know, BYOD was certainly a large part of the enablement process. And so as the endpoint uh, is concerned, the, the actual computing device, that was going to become like a Chrome book, right, and in Chrome pucks for the desktop. Um, but from a BYOD perspective, listen, we, we certainly didn't want to limit the users as well. Uh, you know, we're going to continue to allow the support, you know, both Apple devices as well as, uh, as Android devices, even Windows devices if needed. Uh, the beauty of this architecture is that the endpoint isn't dependent on the delivery architecture. We simply point and position a service portal to the user, which allows us to become realistically endpoint agnostic. Uh, so a user can punch in that user portal, and again, uh, the intelligence of the architecture behind it is able to contextually understand who are you, what device are you using, um, and even to the extent, Phil, that you can say whether it's like a laptop or a PC or a mobile device, so that when you launch an application, it will automatically reskin that application to become bigger, for example, maybe use bigger buttons because you're on a mobile device, uh, make it easier to read potentially, maybe exclude some other menu options that you simply don't need from a mobile device. 
uh, and allow that experience to be a lot more simple. Again, the user doesn't need to do anything here. We don't want them to do anything. We don't want them to hit a button. We just want them to open up their device, launch that portal, and start consuming um, resources. So uh, to that extent, BYOD, bring your own device, uh, that's, that's not an issue. Uh, because again, all we really need to do is have the user point to a specific portal uh, and begin to be able to consume all the content that they require. The my, I was going to ask the security question first, but I think it makes more sense to talk about the mobile first because you're going to have people obviously travel. I'm assuming traveling overseas, internationally, all over the world. How yep. you know? So how? And you mentioned Starbucks, which I always like to say. You know, you could you could log on at a Starbucks in Russia and you'd be fine. Um, <laughs> but how are we? You know, how are we authenticating? Or how how? What did this? What security policies look like? as far as, you know, document sharing or accessing sensitive information from a, you know, public Wi-Fi at a Starbucks in Russia? Sure, sure. Well, good example. So Starbucks in Russia. So um, there, there's going to be an access methodology, right? A centralized point of access that all of these users are going to be coming into. Uh, and that centralized access methodology gives us an extraordinary amount of control to interrogate um, and ask a lot of questions before the user is even given access to the environment. So uh, in that situation, a user is coming in from a remote location, uh, a different country, and an unsecure Wi-Fi. Um, as soon as they launch the portal uh, and they, they, they uh, try to sign in with a username and password, uh, the authentication, and for example, in this case, it could be a load balancer, is going to ask some very important contextual questions. Who are you? Like I said earlier, where are you coming in from? What device you're using and how are you connected? Um, from there, you can actually create geofencing policies. For example, anyone connecting outside the United States or even within these certain countries will not get access to X resource or uh, you know this database or this system. Um, you know, we, we deployed a mobility solution for a healthcare provider, for example, where a user with a tablet can be continuously looking at their service portal and their environment. As soon as they leave the hospital doors, their EMR system is no longer available, period. It's just, it's just not available unless they're coming in from a known device and we pre-launch a VPN session for them. So that can be done automatically as well. But even in that sense, we can create leveled contact. So um, if you're coming in from a, uh, you know, maybe potentially a known device, but a, an unsecured location, but from an approved location, um, you know, you can, sorry, let me say that again. You're coming in from a known device uh, and you're, you're, uh, you're coming in from an unknown location, but you're, you're securing uh, your architecture. We can launch a, um, I'm sorry, an unknown location that hasn't been a geofence, for example, like Russia or some other country. You can pre-launch a VPN session to secure that entire architecture, whatever the user is actually trying to access. However, if they're coming in from an unknown location that's blacklisted potentially or geofence, we can give them very limited access to their data sets and tools and even give them a message saying, hey, you're coming in from a spot that we don't feel is secure. If you'd like to get access to more of this content, here's what you have to do. Um, again, we don't want to completely remove the user experience, but we are going to have to limit them, especially if they're coming in from you know, a spot that's unsecured or certainly a spot that, uh, you know, a country or a location that, that we don't trust. Um, so in that sense, we can do it. It's not hard. And again, it needs to be completely transparent to the user. Gotcha. It's actually one of the reasons why I love uh, uh, Cato Networks has a 
like a global network and global SD-WAN product where you can access pops that are that are all over the world. So I didn't know if you had any thoughts on even just from a data center perspective, if you had, you know, international pops where you could, you know, maybe access a, you know, because speed is going to matter depending on where you're at in the world too. I would, I would imagine on where you're hosting various different applications. So I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Uh, maybe accessing even a an international pop that backhauled traffic to the United States or or anything around there. If there would be other solutions mm-hmm. around it, you know, to create that security aspect, um, where you know people could be anywhere in the world yet still access data within a, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be this scenario, but be able to access data securely, and you know, internationally, with speed being a requirement also. Right, and that's an important point to understand, Phil. A point of presence is really, really critical when you're designing this kind of architecture. So, um, you know, if you're if you're somewhere in Asia and you know you're connecting to a data center that's somewhere in the United States, that's that 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 could be a problem because you are potentially creating a latent network. You're potentially creating an architecture that you know has to traverse a very large pond uh, to get to the endpoint. So, for larger organizations that have people and users that are located abroad and constantly accessing an environment, work with a good data center partner, work with a good pop location, um, you know, especially from a security perspective. It's not just security. That's the thing. Uh, it's also a, a model that allows you to do optimization, uh, improve the network connection, for example, um, and obviously gives you a much uh, better ability to process data much closer to the user, which is absolutely critical. You do not want to create latency or a bad user experience. So to that extent, not only obviously for security reasons, but certainly for performance as well, um, if you've got a large number of users that are, are overseas or trying to access your environment, um, you really do need to think of a, of a point of presence that's much more localized to them. I mean, that, that's just a, a design consideration uh, you have to undertake. This conversation has been outstanding. I think the whole, the summary at the end is a human cent- human centric approach. Um, certainly everything matters. It can't just be a technical okay. approach. If we don't take the human centric approach, uh, not everything's, we just can't, we got to wrap it all together that way. Um, certainly money matters as well. I'm just curious around, you know, why would someone, you know, why would someone do this to begin with, right? Like why, you know, how does, you know, just, let's just talk about just money for a second. How does a migration like this, you know, affect, you know, affect costs on an, on a large organization? Like, did this save money overall in the end? How do you see like a return on investment overall over time? So there's uh there's obviously an intrinsic benefit here in a, in a, in a Know, an ROI that you can t- take a look at and in effect on humans as well as the monetary one. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's certainly an undertaking, right? And in this situation, you know, they were facing a Microsoft renewal that was, it was quite, quite, quite large. Um, and this was their ability to sort of alleviate that Microsoft tax, let's call it, uh, to, to be able to leverage a Google Chromebook and a very, very powerful operating system that you know, required a lot less monetary support. Now, they understood this wasn't going to be an ROI process over one year. Uh, there was certainly going to be a duration here. Um, but doing an ROI study and analysis is going to absolutely help you understand much more clearly what that roadmap actually looks like. Um, and in that sense, you are going to gain a benefit, right? If you're facing, you know, for example, a large renewal, take a look at how Google Chrome, for example, can alleviate that from an endpoint perspective, right? You don't have to license uh, uh, Microsoft desktops anymore. 
uh, you're going to have significantly fewer um, requirements around things like the productivity suite, for example, or the ones that you might be getting is going to be significantly less expensive. Um, and there's going to be other situations where you know, you're seeing improvements in productivity potentially here as well. Um, so overall, you know, working with the, with, with the ROI, it, it's going to be a process and it's certainly a study in itself. Um, you know, in, in other situations, uh, you know, whether it's a renewal, whether it's, it's a part of your infrastructure that you're trying to update, these kinds of models allow you to uh, not only differentiate yourself, but differentiate your business and become more competitive. Um, but certainly doing an ROI study is going to be critical. Uh, you're going to need to understand how these kinds of solutions impact not just your organization in general, but certainly individual uh, businesses as well. Um, I mean, listen, th this isn't the only way to do it, right? We're, we're seeing organizations deploy things like hyperconvergence uh, to get rid of that virtualization tax in some sense because, you know, you no longer need a hypervisor. The hypervisor lives within a hyperconverged appliance. Um, and it's a similar approach here, right? You're trying to get rid of that, uh, that Microsoft tax with both servers and productivity and endpoint by deploying a much more centralized cloud-oriented solution uh, that, you know, impacts your customers, I'm sorry, your, your users in a, in a new and a different way. So uh, it's a study. It's certainly an approach, uh, and it's one of the first things that you have to do uh, when you understand uh, this kind of architecture. Know what your monetary costs are, what your ROI is going to be, and certainly how it's going to impact the users as well. So from a, from a capital expenditure depreciation model in this particular situation, would you say that the the equipment upfront purchase capex and depreciation of equipment across the entire organization was fairly reduced oh yeah i mean absolutely you know you take a look at a, take a look at a, like a like a traditional chromebook device ones that are pretty damn good right you're talking like between 100 and 200 dollars uh, you know, and you get yourself a really, really fast sort of device and you can even do this sort of, uh, you know, a, a tablet, Chrome tablet kind of architecture that just recently got released from, from HP. I'd recommend you take a look at those as well. So uh, overall, you're talking about an investment in devices that are a lot less expensive to maintain and control. There's fewer moving parts. They're going to be faster. Uh, they're going to be much easier to maintain. And here's the other thing. Right? If something happens to that endpoint, um, your time to go from zero to productivity is almost instantaneous because if an endpoint breaks, you can literally sit down in front of the user, give them a new device, the identical device. All they need to do is open it up and connect and their session is exactly where they left it, right? With the same uh, user personalization, with the same setting, literally everything, right? You, you transfer this to... Um, you know, the same kind of a model with a Windows PC, right? You have all these applications potentially installed at your endpoint, something breaks, something's not working right, you have to send somebody to troubleshoot it, you have to send somebody, you know, to do a ghost session to take a look at what's going on with the end user, and it takes time to troubleshoot that kind of architecture. With things like Chromebooks, remember, everything is centralized. So you can oftentimes troubleshoot directly from the data center, your centralized virtualization ecosystem, uh, to see what the problem is and what's impacting the user. Plus, because of that level of centralization, there are some amazing analytics tools that you can see. Uh, maybe the user is you know, having too many tabs open. Maybe there's something wrong with a print service that's actually going to the end user. And again, this is all centralized, so you're actually supporting these kinds of environments uh, uh, much more easily. So uh, it, it's effectively less to manage. Uh, it's less expensive to manage. 
Um, and ultimately, these devices themselves, I mean, are a lot less expensive. And I mean, honestly, they're going to last longer. Again, no moving parts in these Chromebooks. They, they open up and launch almost instantaneously. Uh, and with things like pre-launch and configuration, as soon as the user opens it, you know, all they need to do is log in and boom, their session is available. So, uh, I mean, to that extent, it's, uh, you know, you are working with less expensive devices that can potentially provide better experiences. Last question for, this is more of a, I guess here it's a two-part question, okay? First of all, for mm -hmm. any IT director that has accomplished this or is looking to accomplish something like this, what would your, your piece of advice be? And after that, I just want to know when this is all said and done from a man, from an IT management perspective, is it easier to manage like move ad change requests? Is it all around for everybody just plain easier and faster? Susie Q quits, Mary Jane starts up. How easy is it to do a Mac request now as compared to the old days? Sure. Sure. So First of all, it is going to be easier to manage, right? These endpoints are much smaller. They're much more, we'll call them simpler even. And again, using things like cloud and virtualization, you're centralizing everything. So doing things like ticketing requests, being able to quickly log in to see what the user session is doing, being able to see what's happening at the data center site, maybe with the LAN or WAN connection, that, that all happens much more quickly. Um, and again, what's really cool about these Chromebooks is that it includes, when you, when you purchase them, uh, you can include this enterprise management functionality, which, I mean, it makes managing these things just fundamentally easier, right? It's basically an, a BYOD, an enterprise mobility management solution that allows you to control these devices, what gets provisioned to them, how updates are controlled potentially, um, you know, and, and what you can do from that kind of environment. Um, so, I mean, it's going to be different, right? Obviously, there's really great solutions out there to manage Windows systems as well and Windows endpoints. Um, but, I mean, you're effectively managing a type of a type of thing client that's extraordinarily robust. So, what we saw as a part of this, right, is, in, you know, we have to obviously work with things like essentially ITSM and ITOM to do things like ticketing and troubleshooting, uh, make sure that there's a good process and flow around all this stuff. Um, but you do have the capability to not just improve the end user experience, but the experience for the IT admin um, and the IT organization in general. Um, I mean, that was the beauty of it, right? We found it easier to manage, faster to replace and fix um, devices. Uh, we found that we were able to deliver a much more robust experience, mainly because we were able to control the experience from a centralized location. Um, and then ultimately, uh, the simplicity of these devices, yet still providing rich experience, made them easier to control and troubleshoot and manage and, and certainly deliver. I mean, we replaced a monolithic endpoint architecture with an environment that was much more agile and easier to control. The, okay, part, last question, part B. The, what, what about um, infrastructure upgrades, like internet? Like what about uh, carrier services, stuff like that? Did we, was there any internet upgrades or any, like just bandwidth in general? Did we use up more bandwidth and did we have to do any bandwidth upgrades? Sure. So uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, right? As far as bandwidth is concerned, right? Only, only a little bit uh, because, you know, we saw that, you know, bandwidth requirements are, are you know, they're still accessing the land or certainly the land. Uh, you know, the, 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 um, the requirements didn't change too much, but the beautiful aspect here and what we could do effectively uh, was to manage that kind of environment, right? 
Uh, in those situations, using really good things like load balancers, or application delivery controllers, SD-WAN appliances, and WAN up um, allow you to control bandwidth and control your links as well. Plus, it allows you to learn a lot more about your environment too, where you might need a secondary link. Uh, Phil, you talked about it earlier, maybe a secondary point of presence for remote or uh, international users coming in. Um, it's not so much about bandwidth, it's uh, more about experience, right? And actually being able to control those links that are, uh, are coming into the user. Um, again, it's not that we saw more bandwidth being used. If anything, our solution was actually really efficient with the compression levels that we were using, uh, the delivery of resources via HTML5, for example, uh, you know, and still being able to deliver content-rich experiences um, you know, without overloading the, the WAN links. I mean, that's, that's actually a part of the project and a part of the process. Uh, but I mean, to that extent, you have to have good tools in place to monitor that, monitor your requirements, uh, to make sure that if there are ebbs and flows, that you are very quick to uh, to remediate that and to, you know, to accommodate to that as well. Bill, it's been a uh, been a pleasure as always, man. Anyone that would that would like to get a hold of of Bill Clayman and and have any, I, I guess, any help, um, certainly I am happy to make that introduction for anyone. Bill, any final words, piece of advice, anyone listening out there? What, what's your final thoughts? Uh, you know. Uh, it, it, it can all seem very overwhelming. It can all seem extraordinarily daunting. It doesn't have to be. Uh, and that's a really important thing to understand. Um, it doesn't have to be a, a daunting or challenging process. This is something that, uh, you know, you can absolutely undertake and, and certainly work with. Um, don't rush it. Don't try to do everything in a short amount of time. And if you have a customer that is pressing you to, you know, get it done in a very, very quick time frame. Be a good partner or work with a good partner because I will be one of the first to tell you that a time frame is not reasonable. Or if you do this in time, this time frame, you're going to have some risks. You're going to have, you know, potentially poor performance. You might potentially have, uh, you know, uh, upset end users. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, take take your sweet time here, um, but certainly understand that, you know, this is a process. It's a journey. You have to navigate these waters. And that when you do this right successfully, there are so many benefits to the user, to the business, and the way they actually process and consume this information. Remember, these are digital, connected people. Um, you know, it's not just young people or millennials that are consuming this kind of stuff. It's everybody who wants to be competitive in this industry and in this space. And that's what you're effectively trying to create is a migration and a transition into an architecture that can facilitate that. Take your time. Plan it out work with a good partner that can give you the steps to actually get to the state of, um, of migration. Uh, and absolutely, always, if the one thing you're going to take away from this webinar, make sure it's a people-centric approach to everything that you do. So I could have you on numerous other shows. I'm sure we could talk about security forever. So thank you very much. You are welcome on the show anytime. Uh, one other piece as well, putting together, I am putting together an IT solutions think tank mastermind for any uh, CTOs, IT directors, IT managers that would like to ask other colleagues questions and bounce ideas off of other colleagues. Bill is certainly going to be in that group. Um, I will be, you can find that group on LinkedIn. I have an article that's an, an article about IT, IT leadership. I will put the group invite or the link to apply for the group on my LinkedIn page as well for anyone that's interested uh, to join the group uh, and bounce various ideas off of Bill and other IT directors and successful CTOs that have done other 
complicated migrations or just dealt with uh, hard problems to solve in general. So Bill, thank you very much. Have a great day, sir. Thank you so much, Phil. And thank you everybody for listening. Uh, it's been a pleasure.